Good morning, and uh, my own welcome to add to David and to Karis's uh, earlier on. I'm Andrew, and I help lead the team here at Trinity. So it's just so good to, to be with you. The sun is shining. It's just glorious uh, here in the centre of Cheltenham, as, as these guys were saying. And God is good, isn't he? Lots of things that we can give thanks for, even in these, even in these strange times. So we're in this series on, on Exodus, the book of Exodus. And uh, the book of Exodus, I hope you know, is probably the pivotal book. I, I think almost certainly the pivotal book of the Old Testament part of our Bibles. And the story that is shared through Exodus um, is our story. It's obviously God's story with God's people all those years ago. But we're God's people. So it's our story. And so the question is how we connect, uh, how, how the people heard and told and remembered the story and still do, of course, right the way through as we look forward to Easter and to Passover. They remember the story. And the question is, how is it our story? How is God connecting his story with our story? And on a scattered Sunday, on a, on a Sunday where we're thinking about what it means to live as God's people right the way through the week, uh, you know, don't you, it's not really about the Sunday. The opportunity is there to go prayer walking. But this is so much about Monday morning. This is so much about what our week is going to look like. What is God going to give us to take away today, to take, yes, into maybe some prayer walking, but most importantly, tomorrow morning the rest of the week as God's people. And in the, in the story of, of Exodus, we've got to the, the Ten Commandments. So Exodus is the kind of pivot book of, of the, uh, the Old Testament. And the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments, is really the pivot moment in the book. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20 in just a moment. But before you look, can you name the Ten Commandments? You can do it in any order you like. Any order you want, name the Ten Commandments. Just at home as you sit there, can you think what the Ten Commandments are? Can you name them? Just how many can you do? Any order? Here's my order. Here you go. There you are. I like three, then five, then nine. One, ten, two, seven, eight, six, and four. That's my own personal order. A really old, really bad joke. We're going to do the Ten Commandments in two parts. This week, I'm talking about the context. I'm talking about why are the Ten Commandments the pivot moment within the pivot book of the Old Testament. Next week, Tim Grew is going to be talking and sharing more about the content. So I'm a little bit more about context. And then next week, Tim's going to be a bit more about content. How is God speaking to us as we go into our lives as God's people scattered wherever we are. Holly is going to read for us Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17. Why don't you follow along? And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor any animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Thanks so much, Holly. So yeah, Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the pivotal moment. It's halfway through the story. It's halfway through the the chapters uh, in our Bibles. It's the pivot moment in the pivot book. Now, it's really important that we're not troubled by the fact that there's lots of discussion about the, the narrative, about the historicity, the accuracy of the events in Exodus. That shouldn't trouble us. We should know as Christians, as we read our Bibles, that different genres of Scripture, different styles of writing speak to us God's truth in different ways. Some people debate what this journey, this exodus looked like. How many people? Was it all in one go or was it in a number of groups? Were the, were the walls of the sea on the Red Sea as it split, were they hundreds of feet high? Or was it a swamp that dried through a miraculous drying kind of wind? These things shouldn't trouble us. In fact, they, they enlarge our sense of Scripture. Because the point is, the physical journey that was being described for us, these events, as we've already seen in our series so far, are speaking to us about a much bigger and more important spiritual journey. That's the why of Exodus. And whenever we read God's word, we're always asking ourselves, what's the why? What did this mean when it was written? Uh, What was the context? What was going on? What was God saying? How did God's story connect with the people's story at that time? That's our exegesis. We do that first so that we can then say, how does this story now connect with our story? We do our hermeneutic and we need to do it in the, the two steps so that we read scripture well. We can ask ourselves, what's the why that this has been written? And remembered. So far we've, we've seen how, how Exodus through events, through the telling of a story in events, is speaking to us about God's character, his promises and his essential purposes. When we read in chapter 1 about the cries of the people being heard and despite the oppression God was at work multiplying and bringing fruitfulness to them. Those verbs that we remember from Genesis, the book of Genesis, the creation story and God's promises God's perspective is still working out in their lives we're pointed to a God who is faithful to his promises 
when we read about the plagues and we see how each plague was perfectly aligned, perfectly directed to the Egyptian mythology of the time, to the worship of gods of darkness. We're pointed to the God of light, who is all-powerful over even the sun and the moon and the stars. In the crossing of the great sea, we are pointed to God's sovereign power, his unerring will, his bringing order to chaos. We know throughout scripture, water symbolises chaos. Water from rocks, manna manna from heaven, as the people stumble and grumble, points us to God's provision and to God's purposes. So how does this giving of the law, this giving of the Ten Commandments, point us to God's purposes. What did it mean for the people then? What does it mean for us now as we live as God's people gathered and scattered in the the 21st century, as we come out of lockdown, we come out of pandemic, we, we look around us, we have a sense, of course, of our own needs, but as Tim has been sharing, our own sense of needs prompts us to see the much, much bigger needs that there are. What is our purpose? The people, if you look in chapter 19, are at a mountain, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, as it's called in Deuteronomy. It's in the lower part of the Sinai Peninsula. It's in that bit of the wilderness, which should have taken them about a week to get across from Egypt towards the Promised Land. But actually, they were going to spend 40 years going round and round in circles because they had a lesson to learn. God needed to teach them something spiritually so that they could fulfill God's purposes. And throughout Scripture, mountains are really significant in their association, aren't they, with the presence and the power of God. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that a river flows from the Garden of Eden and then forms into four rivers. It implies, of course, high ground. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, the prophet Ezekiel talks about Eden being both a garden and the holy mountain of God. Throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly encountering and at work in the high places on mountains. Elijah, the prophets of Baal, you can think of many others, I'm sure, yourself. The Psalms are full of the imagery of God's presence and God's power connected with mountains. Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? You look at the the story of Jesus in the second part of our Bible, the New Testament part of our Bible. Think how many key events happen on mountains. He appoints the disciples He teaches and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. There's the transfiguration, the pivot point in the New Testament gospel stories. All on mountains. The Mount of Olives we'll be thinking about in just a few weeks' time at Easter. And Hebrews, when it has its vision in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has the vision for heaven. It's of the Mount Zion and the city of the living God. Revelation 21, the last book in our Bible. The Apostle John, carried in the Spirit, sees the great high mountain, the holy city of Jerusalem. Power. Stability nearness to God. There's a, there's a journey 
to go up a mountain. It takes intention. It takes a willingness and a desire. The point is that the context here tells us that that God is coming to meet with his people and something really big is happening. If we look back into to chapter 19, we see exactly the significance in this context. It is the renewing of God's covenant relationship with his people. Let's have a look just at the verses from chapter 19. God, uh, God says, you have seen what I have done. You've seen the whole of the story, Moses, and then tell this to the people. All the story of the, the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. You've seen what I've done now. Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God, our God, is a covenant-making God. If you know your Bibles, you'll know that back again in Genesis, Genesis chapter 9, there's the foundational covenant with Noah in the face of sin, in the face of an expression of the full depravity of sin that cuts us off from God. There is the covenant, God's creation purposes for the whole of humanity are declared and given. Genesis 12 and 15, there's the covenant with Abraham, the calling of a particular people to serve particular purposes from a particular promised land. But their purpose is to be a blessing to all nations. They've lost their track. That's why they've ended up in Egypt, but they're being brought back to it now in the giving of the Moses covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's going to be the next revelation, the framework for the relationship between God and his people. It's a beautiful picture of the people being gathered in order to live scattered. It's a picture for us, Trinity, gathered to be scattered. Spoiler alert, there are two more covenants to come, aren't there? Two Samuel 7, that there's the covenant with David that's going to be made. The promise of a king through whom the promises are going to be realised and made. And then, of course, Luke chapter 22. Jesus is the fulfilment of what then becomes the old covenant in order to inaugurate the new covenant relationship with God. This is why... They are gathered at a mountain to meet with God, to receive his covenant and from here to go on to serve their purposes for the rest of their history and into our history. It's rightly said that, that really the whole of the Old Testament, the, the Torah, the Jewish Torah, the law revolves around Exodus And the whole of this Exodus story revolves around this event, this moment when God says, you are my people. I want you. I want you in relationship with me. I want you serving your purposes. Look and see what I have done in order to know what we are going to do together. We get put off, don't we, by the word commandment, perhaps, It may really help you to know that in Hebrew, it's sayings or words, matters from God. 
might even be put off by the number 10. A lot of scholars think that there are 10. It's ordered in this way to help us memorise them. In the Jewish Talmud, there's a different ordering. In the Catholic Catechism, there's a different slight ordering. doesn't really matter, friends, because the purpose, the context, the reason in God's story and his people's story then and in God's story and our story now as they connect and overlap is about relationship. As I've said, Tim next week is going to go deeper into the nature of these commandments because they they are commandments, they are musts, they're not ifs. But they have a a framework which is holistic and all-encompassing. Do you notice there's the, the first allegiance, our first call is to God, honour God, don't have any other gods, no idols, don't take God's name in vain, don't dishonour your identity as the people of this God. There's the, the sanctity of life in that command not to murder. Again, when we think about framework, there's the essential bonds of relationship. When, it, when we talk about honouring our, our parents, honouring family, and in Jewish thinking, there's a covenant household perspective. And then honouring partners, husbands, wives. But again, it's thinking about relationship bonds. And then fourthly, with this holistic picture, is, is the foundations for good community life truthfulness, not being driven by greed, not stealing what is not yours. It is a beautiful, holistic picture, the architecture, the framework for a relationship. And that is why it is the pivot, the hinge point, the centre of Exodus It's why it's the centre, the hinge point, the pivot of the whole Old Testament of our Bibles. And it's why it has to be at the centre of who we are as God's people. Tim's going to, as I say, do more on the detail and there's such beauty such richness because you'll have worked out already although the commandments are clear they're not ifs they're musts there's an enormous amount that you have to work out in practice within the framework it is a relationship and so it has to be lived out in practice again trinity we gather and it's so beautiful when we gather and it's the thing we're called to do, to honour and to worship God. But the reality of our lives, the reality of our relationship is Monday morning. It's Tuesday at six o'clock. It's Thursday at three o'clock in the morning. It's the choices we make. It's the way we live out. Are we living in the light of God's promises? Are we looking and seeing what he's done in order to fulfil his purposes in us? Sunday, this day, this Sabbath day, is the start of the week. Three things I just want to notice with you today in the last couple of minutes I've got with you. The first is, and I'm not being facetious, do you notice, verse one, that God spoke? these words. It's personal. 
The emphasis in the Hebrew there is on God speaking. How personal is your relationship with God at the moment? As you come out of lockdown, like me, as you struggle with all the things there are to struggle with, as you maybe cope with your mental health, your emotion at one level for some, but, but maybe much deeper and significant than that. As you, as you wonder about relationships, as you wonder about jobs and careers and finance and what it means to be us, how personal is our relationship with God? Is this, is this rule of life just a, a tick list that we're hoping if we just kind of put the right amounts in with God and then pull on the one-armed bandit of God's faithfulness that we'll get the reward that we somehow deserve? Or is there, a, is there a pattern in my life, a pattern in your life that expresses a personal relationship, not just knowing about God, but really knowing God, really connecting with God? God spoke these words. It's personal. Hills taught last week, didn't she, about how wilderness times cause us to focus on what matters. The second thing is to notice, and again, I'm not being facetious, that God spoke these words. He's not applying for the role of Lord of our lives. They carry the full force and the authority of the one who did divide the seas, the one who did raise the mountains. God has the right to command because of everything that he has done. I wonder if you interpret God's words as good guidance. I wonder, as uh, someone at a new wine conference a few years ago challenged me about, a guy called Steve Nicholson, I wonder if you have your own version of the top 10. I wonder if you do order them in a way, you know, well, I don't murder, so I'm, I'm good on that one. Coveting, not so good, but it's, it's lower down the list. It doesn't really matter quite so much, does it? I wonder if you're tempted to take these as 10 suggestions not the framework for a relationship, the, the pivot, the hub of what it means to be God's people, to serve his purposes in the world. Are we standing at the foot of a mountain grumbling? Or are we standing at the foot of a mountain listening? There's so much in our world that we have to engage with. There are so many things, when, especially perhaps when it comes to relationships at the moment, when it comes to identity, when it comes to our sense of even words, gender, sex. So many other topics that we could talk about where God is not just giving us some neat suggestions. God is speaking to us. And he's saying, I have the right to speak in this way because I am God. And your life is in response to me. Don't, don't let us try and turn our relationship with God into a tick list of religion. Don't also let us try and ignore his voice. And so lastly, my third point this morning, and I just want to show you this picture of two really important 
documents in my life, two important images. One is a contract with Virgin Media. It's really important to me. The other is a covenant picture. And straight away, I recognise, of course, that many of us, the biggest challenge of this pandemic has been living alone. I realise that for many of us, covenant relationships in terms of marriage are not a good story. But whatever our personal experience, I hope you know the difference between a contract and a covenant. Our God is not a contract-making God. He is a covenant-making God. The pivot, the circle, is a covenant. A contract is based on mutual needs. God doesn't need anything from us. A contract is based on provision of services. God's not looking for a service from us. A contract includes clauses for if you have to break the contract. It has that expectation, it that possibility. A covenant, you don't enter into a covenant with prenuptials actually, from a godly perspective. A covenant presumes the best. A covenant expects relationship to continue. A covenant is a perpetual promise with the expectation that those promises will be kept. You can break a contract and walk away from it if you pay the penalties, in a sense, with your morality intact. You can never walk away from a covenant without there being cost. Now hear me carefully, friends, when I say our God is a God of grace and forgiveness and love. We all mess up and our God welcomes us back. Please hear me carefully if your story of relationships is of broken covenants. But when we're looking at this, when we're asking what it means to be God's people, let's not make it a contract with God. Now let's, not, let's not say, God, I'm waiting to see what you're going to do on your side of the bargain. Let's see what's made with us is, is a, a gift to us by one who did not have to give, but one who chooses to give, who says, I want to make a perpetual promise to you. And it'll only be true, it'll only be real, it'll only express all that it is if you walk in it, day by day. It's my Monday morning choice. Is God going to be God in my life or not? I think there's a few of us who attempted to make our relationship with God a contract. We get disappointed then. Come on, God, haven't I fulfilled my side of the bargain? What are you doing? That's not what this is. In a covenant, you don't, you don't give just because of what you're going to receive. You give to give. And in a relationship, if both are giving and giving and giving, it can only be good, whatever the sacrifices involved. It's a heart question. Are you trying to seal a covenant with God? Or are you trying to sign on a dotted line? There's a big difference. And as I've said, the people of God, we're going to spend the whole of the Old Testament revolving around this and trying to work it out. Jesus came 
and revealed and fulfilled and explained and showed us where they went wrong in trying to make it a contract. I love that Rin, this morning, in our daily devotional, the Out of Egypt daily devotionals, I hope you're watching them, uh, really talked about how we can remember God's goodness to us. And for me, that's a massive part of a rule of life, the way that I make time in terms of Sabbath or how I try. I was talking to our staff team here this week about what are the practices we have that express what we believe in working relationships. I love that. How are you going to remember? How am I going to remember a covenant, not a contract?